Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. And I think that there is just this disconnection between who we think we should be and who we are. And oftentimes we talk about work-life balance. Like most stress and most depression, oftentimes it comes from work. And people think that they cannot be their authentic selves at work. And you have Brene Brown talking about rehumanizing work, right? And that's really important. That's just realizing that you are a human person who is coming to work. And it's not just about getting the job done. It's about being in a team that supports each other. Those are the best teams. So those are the most productive teams in terms of ROI. But it's also just happy people. And so I really like to talk about work-life integration as opposed to work-life balance. Because work-life balance means that you have to balance something that's good and something that's bad. Russian-born, New York-raised, corporate lawyer turned facilitator, speaker and entrepreneur with a mission to empower people and organizations to flourish through science-backed behavioral solutions is this week's guest, Elena Taboul. Graduating with a bachelor's degree in economics from New York University and a JD from Columbia Law School, Elena became a corporate lawyer at top New York law firm Davis Polk and Wardwell. Elena is a powerhouse of positive energy and focus. The legal world never stood a chance. And it was not long until Elena found herself studying psychology at Columbia University. Realising that powerful mindfulness techniques based on positive psychology weren't easily accessible to most corporations, Elena started Light Up Lab to address the gap in the market with a mission of cracking the code to happiness. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, so we've made it a two-parter. Part one covers her upbringing in Brighton Beach, her education and her journey to creating the Light Up Lab. The value she delivers, her methodology, goal-setting principles, and the tools necessary to unlock and sustain the full potential of people in business. In part two, we get more into curiosity, creativity, education, passion, principles, and all our quick-fire questions. I hope you enjoy this enlightening insight into Elena's fitness class for the mind. Elena, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you, Mark. Excited to be here. It's wonderful. Thank you for um, getting together at Neuhaus. Two members together. That's right. I think it's actually, I think you might, no, Chantal Martin's a member. So you're the second uh, joint member of Neuhaus. And That's I think great. the membership committee are very happy about it. Maybe there's a strategy here for me interviewing all the members of Neuhaus. That's right. One by one. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Got to think <laughs> so about that. Fun. I'll get Bettina on that when she gets back from her sojourn through Europe. So before we get into talking about your business and Light Up Lab and what you're doing with positive psychology, uh, we'd like to explore your life, your upbringing, and understand the, about the impact of your childhood. As uh, from our early conversations, I believe that you were born in Russia. That's right. Yes. But came to the U.S. at quite a young age. So maybe you could just give us a little bit of background on your early years, and particularly um, the impact of your parental support and guidance on the journey you've found yourself on. 
Sure, thank you. So that's right. I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, and I moved to the U.S. when I was just turning seven. So at the time, it was not a great place to be Jewish. And my parents moved when it was basically the last wave of Russian Jewish immigration. And so then we moved to the U.S. as my with my entire family, really. And we moved to Brighton Beach, which is where all Russian Jewish people, (laughs) the modern day Ellis Island for Russian Jewish people. And I lived there until high school. And then we moved to Connecticut, which was a really big shock for me because I discovered that not everyone speaks Russian, which it took me until high school to learn. Um, But, you know, the the immigrant mentality and maybe Russian Jewish is not that different from a lot of other immigrant mentalities is always that, you know, success in terms of financial, in terms of career is a little bit limited. So even though my parents told me that, you know, you could be anything, really what they meant was... As long as I was a doctor or a lawyer. (laughs) There were three things. I could go to business school, but they decided that was for boys. Mm And then they said, well, we don't think that you're that great in science, so you shouldn't be a doctor. And that's basically how everyone decided I should be a lawyer. And I did that. I went right from studying economics at NYU right to law school. I didn't take any time off. And that was kind of considered to be this American dream success. Once I graduated, I worked for one of the big law firms. Well, before, before we get into that, can we, I, I just want to go back a little bit. First of all, why Brighton Beach? Apart, from, There must be other places in the US that, that Russians reside and, and Russian Jews go to, but were, were they guided there? Were they advised? We already had there? some family who came over a few years before that and settled uh, in Brighton Beach. Right, so yeah. you all had, you had a pre-established community. A little bit, yes. It was kind of a big joke that I think that the older people in Brighton Beach don't even realize that they're in America. Because if you go there, all the shops, everything, everything's in Russian. There's a Starbucks and you can order in Russian. Even now? Even now. Wow. I need to go and visit Brighton Beach. It's a really weird (laughs) place. It's interesting. Actually, about a year ago, I took a bunch of friends for... Uh, experience night out to Brighton Beach. There's a place there called Tatiana's, which is this nightclub, except there's like 80-year-olds and then there's four-year-olds, even though it's midnight and everyone is just kind of there drinking vodka and eating caviar. And apparently you could buy caviar on food stamps in Brighton Beach. Give me an even better reason to go to Brighton Beach <laughs> on a Friday night. I'll be taking Elaine and the dog there. Exactly. So it's uh, it's a really quirky place. What subway lines on? Mm. Oh, I think the B yeah. to Coney Island. Ah, there you go. So a little excursion coming oh, along before goodness. the end of the summer. Yeah, you're, you're giving me a blast from the past yeah. because I just, I never really go back except as like one time for this nightclub to bring some friends over. So going back to those sort of those early years, do you remember your early years in Russia? Not really, yeah. no. So. I was so young that it really all started when we moved to the US. So built around Brighton Beach. I was also an only child and so mm. I think that because so I have two kids now and I see them interacting and they have a lot of memories that they kind of build together but because it was just me and my parents I think I didn't have as much going on and I didn't go to school there and 
and so I think that there just wasn't that much happening for me to have concrete memories of. So what was the family network like? I mean, presumably it's a very tight-knit community. Not really. It was a lot me and my parents. It was mm. the three of us, a lot, which is why I decided that I definitely needed two kids so they could have a best friend, embedded so, so best friend. So what was friend. it like growing up? I mean, what, what were your... Um how did your parents, who were the the major influences between your mother and father? What did they do, first of all? They're so my mother is a pharmacist. She was a biology and chemistry teacher in Russia. And when they moved here, they spoke some English because my grandmother was an English teacher in Russia. And it's really funny because she sounds like she's British. Because if you learn English in Russia, you learn British. And quite, she, right, quite right too. Yeah, so she doesn't have a Russian accent. My grandmother had a British accent. It was really funny. But so my mom spoke some English, decent enough, and she came here and decided to go back to school and get her pharmacy degree. And she was really inspirational to me because she would tape record her lectures because she couldn't take notes and listen because her English wasn't that great. Oh, and so she would tape record all the lectures and she would come home and she'd have all her notes and she'd be trying to translate the into Russian so that she could learn it and really understand it and then translate it back to English to memorize it for the test. I see. So, so that, that, added, that so she had no time to have any more children. No, that. no, certainly not. And but it did give me, I think, that work ethic, and I was really impressed to see her doing that all the time. They were really busy, but it was amazing to see that she really cared and she she wanted to make something out of her life here. And your father? And my father is a mad scientist, basically. <laughs> He's like in all those Russian movies, the, the Russian guy is either some sort of computer science uh, genius or the bad guy. So my dad, in this case, is the computer the science genius good guy. And now he works for um, an AI startup. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I was talking to another member of Neuhaus and they work with a, a VC company and they were she was telling me that the VC company are employing all these luminaries, they call them, mm. people that have had a lifetime of experience of building complex technologies, but maybe things from the nuclear industry or from the space industry, but are now partnering them with startups in things like AI because they bring a wealth of experience and knowledge. So obviously your father has this legacy of amazing knowledge and experience and is applying it to current AI solutions. That's, that's, re that's right. really interesting. Yeah, so they're doing all the big data stuff. The company's called R4 Technologies. So they, they're doing really well now, and he's been there for a while. He was at Priceline and then left, well, I guess it's been now at least five, seven years that he's with R4. So they're doing really well. It's really exciting. Nah, interesting. Yeah. So who had the greater influence on your sense of self or the direction you went i mean you obviously mentioned the the expectation from an immigrant family to go into the tradition down the traditional route of either medicine or law but which one was the one that had the most either inspirational influence or influence on your educational direction i think it was just seeing both of them work really hard and knowing that they, a lot of people come to this country and they do, they, they don't necessarily go back and get a degree and they don't try to go into these 
kind of difficult professions and seeing that they gave everything that they could both for to better themselves and also to give me a good start in life really inspired me so I can't say that it was either of them really was just the dynamic of the household they never checked my homework they never told me what needs to be done it was just kind of by osmosis watching them working all the time and and really trying to better themselves realizing that I had to do the same being an only one what was the role of play in your life and did you amuse yourself did you were you solitary or did you have a strong group of friends and go out into the wilds onto the beach and come back at sunset it's really interesting i think about this a lot especially when i read about like play and creativity Mm -hmm. research and how kids are so creative and i think i actually had the opposite experience because i was all by myself and there was a lot of it was all in my head but i didn't necessarily have anyone to play with when i was little and I remember just always being quite lonely, honestly. And this is why I my kids are 17 months apart because I, I wanted them to have that. And not until really high school, I would say, is when I had my big social life. But before that, I remember, yeah, I definitely remember a lot of solitude. And I was always very cerebral, which I guess explains why I went to law school and back to school for psychology but I read a lot and I liked chess and I was just very kind of shy and quiet and cerebral which you when you meet me now I guess you would never expect it <laughs> oh, but it laid the foundations say. yeah uh, and obviously a safe environment to grow up in no sense of fear or no or risk Well, financially, for sure, they were struggling because they just came to the U.S., but they never really let me feel it. The other thing is that it was Brighton Beach. There wasn't really this immense amount of wealth anywhere around me, so I wasn't necessarily comparing it to anything. I just thought that was normal, and it was before Instagram and before you could see what everyone else has, and I just thought that I was a kid living a normal life and don't think I gave it much thought at the time. Do you have a, a, a defining memory from childhood, something that is etched in your mind that you always go back to? Honestly, no. Really, really no. Um, But a happy childhood. It was happy, but it was it was simple. And whenever even I do these like meditations for people where I ask them to envision themselves as a child, and it's funny because I really can't do it. Whenever I personally do any of those meditations, I think of my own kids and I imagine them playing and I imagine them as as they are. But it's really hard for me to see myself as a child. That's interesting. Mm. Maybe we can come back and talk about why that is um, when we get into talk about your practice in more detail. Talk to me about education. When you went to school in Brighton Beach, what were you like as a student? And as a oh, always I'm the front row teacher's pet, hand up. up, and I just, I can't help myself with that because even as an adult going back for this master's in psychology, I just can't help myself sitting in the front row and knowing all the answers. It's really strange. I actually, I was taking this course a semester ago and I said to myself, I don't have time to be just knowing everything and sitting in the front row. And I purposely made myself I was like, I'll just get like a B 
and I'm not going to try and it's going to be fine. And of course, I end you up with like an A plus because I just can't help myself. Um, so I was always very studious and always just wanted the but I didn't want the grade. I think I wanted the knowledge. I was always very curious. And to this day that I just, I love to learn new things and which is why I love to read. And so I was always just a really good student. Was that curiosity nurtured? Or do you think it was just a nature that you were just a naturally curious child? And because you were spent so much time in your own mind and reading books, is that do you think that cultivated curiosity to a certain extent? Yeah, for sure. I definitely, it was not nurtured because my parents just thought, well, she's a straight-A student, we have no problems, and they had to worry about their own I mean, they came to the U.S. when they were in their 30s, so they had a lot on their plate to deal with. And since I didn't pose any problems and always did really well, I think they just let it go. But, you know, if I ever brought home a 99 on a test, the question was, what'd you get wrong? <laughs> it was never a good job. It was like, well, how could you get that wrong? That's so silly. Yeah, and if I come home with a 99, my mom would be like, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you cheat? <laughs> No, if I ever had like a lower score on something, I would be so devastated that my mom would say, it's really okay, let's go do something to get your mind off it. She'd have to buy me something to just cheer me up because I was so upset about it. Wow. It's really, it's funny. And did you have any teachers that were either inspirational or pivotal or direct in, in terms of the, if the direction you went in or whether you just locked out and had all very good teachers no I think I actually had terrible teachers I've never had a good teacher until college really because again we lived in a neighborhood that didn't have great yeah, schools and so I the teachers in my mind were usually wrong or confused so as the you know straight A student that I was like raising my hand and saying I don't agree I don't think that makes sense and usually I was right mm -hmm. <laughs> And now it's funny because I just did this whole uptown private school circuit for my kids for kindergarten admission. And these schools are phenomenal. And I just, I wonder what would happen if I had a chance to go to a school like that where any, where robotics or math or you're building and you're creating and you're drawing and all of these amazing imaginative things that kids get to do these days at these particular schools just completely didn't exist for me. So I had a very just rigid here, you know, memorize this and regurgitate it. And if, you'd, if you'd had that level of stimulation and direction and creativity in it, I mean, it wouldn't just be 99s, it'd be 100s. And the interesting thing, and we're going to talk about serendipity, but in a, in a, in a strange directional, or let's say the road that you've taken has taken you to the point where you're applying your creativity and natural curiosity in a way that's Im having impact. Yes. So. And I feel very fortunate for that because I really thought that I was going to be this very successful corporate attorney. So what was the point at which you decided to change direction? So my husband was working in Bermuda at the time, and he was working for, a, for an investment management firm called Orbis. 
And the founder of that firm is Alan Gray, and he founded, it's called Alan Gray Investments in South Africa, and Orbis has offices all over the world. So I knew Alan because my husband worked for him, and I was on maternity leave in Bermuda, and we were at Alan's house for dinner, and he knew my legal career. And he also knew that I was very interested in philanthropy. I would do a lot of pro bono work when I was at Davis Polk, particularly for women who were trying to get status in the U.S. because they were either in forced marriage or female genital mutilation. I was working a lot with women and I was really interested in philanthropy. And so he said, listen, I'm retiring as chairman of Orbis and I'd like to start a foundation. And he is an extremely wealthy man and he basically donated his entire fortune to philanthropy. And he said, you should come work for me. And that's not an offer that you turn down because Alan is really an incredible, incredible person with a very generous and big heart. And I saw this as an opportunity that I could continue to practice my legal skills because the foundation was going to have offices worldwide. And so there was a lot of legal structuring that had to happen to make sure that this foundation could function in different jurisdictions. But then It would also entail kind of figuring out what we could do in Bermuda and creating real change. And Bermuda is a really amazing place to do that because it's so small. Mm -hmm. It's only 60,000 people. And so when you talk about unemployment or homelessness or kids who need a better education, it's easy to identify. Yeah, Yeah. when you look at the census, the first time I looked at the census, I was trying to figure out, you know, if it says 244, what does that mean? Is that 244,000? I was like, oh, wait, no, that means 244. (laughs) So you really could effectuate real change there. And I was really inspired by that and really inspired by Alan. And I love Davis Polk to pursue that opportunity in Bermuda. Sounds like quite a serendipitous yeah opportunity yeah it was it was really really interesting and i think it was the first time that i got to flex this creativity muscle because alan said okay well what do we do in bermuda and i said okay well let me go figure that out what do you think he saw in you that made him make this offer that's an interesting question he did make me take a couple of personality tests so he was Definitely very deliberate about Mm -hmm. what he wanted. And I think that he wanted this creative thinker who can think outside the box Mm -hmm. because he really didn't know what was the right choice for Bermuda because Bermuda has a lot of political and social complexities. Even though it's it's so small, you would think that you can fix things quite easily. Actually, you can't. And so I think he wanted someone who was going to be passionate, but at the same time, very logical and reserved enough to understand that you have to approach things with caution and that you have to be very systematic and that you have to understand the climate. And presumably a very good people person. And a good people build person. relationships with the stakeholders. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's really interesting that you ticked all those boxes. And just a question, so I understand, did he decide to start and almost road test his philanthropy in Bermuda before scaling it globally? So it's actually started in South Africa a long time ago, and they do amazing things in South Africa with education and entrepreneurship. 
And then he decided he was going to build kind of a separate branch of it that was going to be in Bermuda and in other jurisdictions where the business has a presence because the idea was to really give back in the communities where the employees of Orbis live and work. So it's in Bermuda, it's now in Jersey, and the idea is for it to be in the UK next and other places where Orbis has a presence. How does he track impact and change? It's hard for me to say now because I haven't been there for the past two years and we were really in the idea generation phase at the time. So we just weren't doing that. And I'm not sure how he's tracking things now, honestly. Okay. (laughs) Um, How did you pivot from that to then? I mean, because it sounds like you were on the perfect journey for you. It was creative it was required your curiosity your people skills your legal skills it was a perfect collection of challenges that that allowed you to apply all your skills and talents where did the pivot come from to psychology (laughs) well we decided as a family that we wanted to raise our children and go back to new york but not brighton beach not brain beach <laughs> for sure no. i take it your husband's not russian he's french french okay so he grew up in paris and he was working for orbis in london and then the headquarters is in bermuda so he ended up in bermuda and we met in new york he was just in new york for the weekend and we had this long distance thing going on for a few years and that was really interesting because we were doing it even we we had kids and still kept doing long distance but we got to miss each other all the time so it was okay (laughs) but we decided we really wanted to raise our kids in New York and a large part of that is honestly the education Mm. Uh, Bermuda does not offer that much opportunity for education and we both really value the importance of a very good education so we are very picky with the schools that are we send our children to now and they're in amazing schools and we're very fortunate for that but we decided we wanted to build our life here and I also as much as I think Alan is an amazing person I think that there were things I just wanted to get done and it was a little slow for me that I felt like I couldn't just decide and push the button that there was always it seemed an approval process and I thought I really need to just work for myself because I'm too impatient (laughs) to wait for someone else to give me the green light. And I was interested in psychology because in Bermuda, the project that I started working on was in education. And I really thought there was no zero to three, no, really no zero to five opportunities for like your average Bermudian in Bermuda. So education started free education started in kindergarten when kids are five anything before that was very expensive and was really for the expats and very few bermudian families so what happened was that the public education system in bermuda was really terrible and the teachers were struggling a lot because the kids were coming at five years old and they weren't socialized they didn't understand how to raise their hand they didn't understand how just social group dynamics worked they basically would spend five years in front of a television and I thought that we really need to change that and provide really good free opportunities for the zero to five children and 
psychology entered into that because I realized very early on that it's not just about the education for these kids, but you can't really teach hungry kids and you can't teach kids whose parents aren't around and whose parents don't care. And it became a lot about the psychology of the family. And then it became about do we hire social workers who are then going to be able to help these kids and make sure that the parents are properly involved. And so there was a lot of group dynamics and psychology that went into the thinking of building these schools in Bermuda. And I think thought maybe I'd like to go back to school and study psychology, but I wasn't sure if it was necessarily for child psychology. I think it just sparked the interest in neuroscience and understanding that these kids zero to three is this absolutely pivotal time, which I didn't know. And it was great that I found that out because my own kids were <laughs> zero to three at the time, just in time. And, just in yeah. time. and I said, oh, I better <laughs> no more television. <laughs> We know we're not a big television or electronics family in general, but uh, it really it was it was very good time for me to realize just how important this time was for my own kids. But I thought, okay, I'm going to research different psychology programs, and we're going to move back to New York, and that's when I came across a book by this woman, Lisa Miller, who's the head of the Spirit Mind Body Institute at Columbia in the psychology department. And the book is The, um, the Spiritual Child. And the program is SMBI, Spirit Mind Body Institute. And it's a really interesting program because it's the first time that an Ivy League institution really recognizes the link between spirituality and psychology and that it's not just religion or spirituality in the way that we tend to think of it in a in day-to-day terms, but that it really does have a lot of psychological benefits and safety and part of the community. And it has a lot um, of important benefits. And I was really inspired by the book and thought I'd really like to study with Lisa Miller. And I did more research into SNBI, into the program. And I didn't end up going into that program. I did uh, just a general psychology program because it allowed me to take some of the SMBI courses, but then also allowed me to take courses in other areas like organizational psychology, which I thought was pretty relevant given my career. So you studied that, um, a year's course or two? So the master's program is very flexible and you can take it from one to five years and it really just depends how you want to treat it it ended up being extended for me because i've real there's a columbia also has an executive coaching program which i realized i could take as part of the masters and so now i'm in this executive coaching program which has overlapped and extended the master's experience. <laughs> but it's really fascinating, and I'm really enjoying that a lot. So talk to me then about the creation of Light Up Lab. First of all, I mean, great name. You maybe talk about why you came, how you came up with the name. But you've got a mission to help people, What you, the way you describe it, is crack the code of happiness. Yeah. So if you could you just sure. explain the name and why you focused it on yeah so there's, there are, uh, there's a code for happiness yeah 
Um, so the light is something that is inside of you, right? And that you light up when you're happy. And then it's also the sparking of an idea mm -hmm. of the light. And so I thought it's it has to be you light up. And then it's a lab because it's science-based. And oftentimes these we have these beautiful ideas about what makes life worth living and what helps people to thrive. And we've been reading Plato and Aristotle since we were kids, right? But those concepts were never empirically researched. And what I love about positive psychology is that there is real scientific evidence behind these mm. practices. So it's a lab because we are based in science. It's not just ideas. So it's using science to be able to light up your life, basically. And the cracking the code to happiness is also kind of the play on words for science and cracking the code. But it, there is a code because you can cultivate all of these different practices. And when we talk about certain things like setting goals and accomplishments, those really make a difference. And there's a right way to set goals and there's a wrong way to set goals. And there are things that actually make you happier day to day that sounds silly when you don't realize that there's been a lot of research behind it and when people say you should be grateful and it, it some people think that that's just silly but really when you track people and you ask them to do these kind of exercises and then you have and then you ask them a year later how do they feel there's a difference it really does lead to a better life so can we just put that in the context then? Because we are living in really challenging times. I mean, just some facts. 320 million people globally are suffering from depression and anxiety, and that's just the reported numbers. Um, I think 16.1 million American workers are affected by major depressive disorders, according to workplacementalhealth.org. Uh, and statistically... 50% uh, of the population claim to feel alone, disconnected, and that no one really knows them. I mean, these are shocking statistics. So why, why, one, why do you think we're in that this, in this time when these statistics are on the rise, and yet you're and you're working to try and, in your own particular way, address presumably some of the underlying reasons behind it? Maybe you could just reflect on that. Could be your perspective. They really are very scary statistics. And I think that there is just this disconnection between who we think we should be and who we are. And oftentimes we talk about work-life balance, like most stress and most depression. Oftentimes it comes from work and people think that they cannot be their authentic selves at work. Mm -hmm. And you have Brene Brown talking about rehumanizing work, right? And that's really important. That's just realizing that you are a human person who is coming to work. And it's not just about getting the job done. It's about being in a team that supports each other. Those are the best teams. So those are the most productive teams in terms of ROI. But it's also just happy people. And so I really like to talk about work-life integration as opposed to work-life balance. Because work-life balance means that you have to balance something that's good and something that's bad. That's really interesting. I've not heard that term before. And that makes so much sense. Because you have to bring your whole self to work. And you can only be the most successful 
person at work if you are your whole self. But a huge part of that is awareness, is knowing what are your skills? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your values? Most people have never done the exercise of writing down their values. And when I have a big question in my own life of what should I do, should I go this way or that way, I actually sit down with myself and I write down what are my values and I say, okay, well, if this is true for me, so freedom is a very big value for me, for example. And when I decided on my entrepreneurial journey and I said, well, I don't know if this is going to be successful. I don't know if this is going to make any money. Who knows what, what's going to happen here, right? And I said, well, if freedom and then growth is my other big value. And I thought, well, that means that I can't really work for someone else, that I need to be free to make my own decisions and I need to grow and learn, which means that entrepreneurship makes sense. But if security is my value, then you wouldn't make that decision. And I think that oftentimes, if you're really honest with yourself, what are those values? What they give structure to your life. And people don't ask themselves these questions. There's also just so many concepts that I think people don't know about emotional intelligence and social intelligence and what is empathy and why is compassion at work a real thing. People get really scared when you start talking about compassion at work because they think if you're a compassionate leader, that means you're a weak leader and that people won't do their work anymore. And that's just not true. All the research shows that if you're a compassionate leader, then you gain the trust and loyalty of your employees. And then they will be so much more productive and your entire company is going to thrive and flourish. We interviewed Beth Comstock, uh, who was, used to be vice chair of GE. And mm. she was reflecting on how she went into GE at the time of before Jeff Immelt, um, Jack Welsh, when Six, Six Sigma was mm -hmm. being used, which was all about productivity and mm -hmm. performance, and that she was trying to drive innovation and imagination and ignite imagination and curiosity inside the organization to unlock the potential mm -hmm. of people. And essentially, that's what you're focused on doing, presumably with Light Up Lab. Do you think that we're going through a reorientation of management thinking in society in the more enlightened organizations to embrace the type of thinking that you're promoting? I think yes, but... Most of the innovation and thinking is still happening at the C-suite. Mm -hmm. There have always been amazing executive coaches for CEOs. And that's very important to make sure that your leaders understand what's going to create culture for the organization. But the companies are still not spending that much resources, whether it's time or money, on the actual employees. And what I think the difference is what we're trying to do is that our workshops are not just for the leaders. Our workshops are for everyone. Because your lower level managers, they're the ones who are struggling the most. No one ever taught them how to manage and they have to manage down to make sure people are doing their work, but they're sandwiched between because they have to also manage up to make sure that they're delivering. And no one is really paying attention to them. They don't have coaches. They don't have anyone to explain these concepts to them. And they don't have a lot of time to, to learn about their own strengths and values because they're very busy. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring these workshops to the general population of these organizations so that they can start implementing it in their own life. A couple of things. 
presumably you face barriers because institutional sort of just culture within organizations tends to be institutionalized. It's often fear driven, it's risk averse. Equally with that, the economic pressure to hit quarterly numbers, the often training and reorientation of the way that everything from what you're talking about requires internal training, but it affects external hiring policies. Because mm -hmm. if you're talking about bringing the whole self to work, finding the right fit of people in hiring is important going forward to ensure that you're going to create the productive environments yes. for people to thrive. This presumably isn't just an overnight do some workshops and, and you're lighting up those organizations to, to create that work-life integration. This must be a, a long-term change management process that organizations have to embrace. Yes, so I think that there is um, there's different approaches. So some companies, they will do workshops and we do a different series of workshops. So we can come once, we can come many times. But these workshops are really intended for the employees to be able to gain this self-awareness and self-knowledge and tools and techniques that they could use in their everyday life. So what we don't do right now is we don't work with management to do massive culture change. Uh, so you're starting from the bottom. We're starting from the, the bottom. Up. And that's interesting. Because I think that you've, management consultants have done culture work for a long time. This, that's not a new concept. I think what is new is trying to give the skills directly to the employees so that they know how to be resilient themselves. And so that if they are struggling with personal issues, that could also be addressed. Because sometimes we're so focused on making sure that they only understand what's relevant at work, but maybe they're having social difficulties at home with their partner. And that's creating problems for them at work because they're distracted. We interviewed Ryder Carroll who's written a book called The Bullet Journal, and he talks a lot about intentionality. Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't intentional, so it goes down to goal setting and being precise about where you want to do the decisions mm -hmm. you take, actively updating t tasks, so you're not just drifting. Mm -hmm. Presumably what you're doing, I, by the sounds of it, it sounds like you're unlocking the ability for people to become more intentional with their careers and their lives by going through these workshops. Definitely, and so uh, Sonia Lubarinsky is a researcher that's pretty well respected in the positive psychology arena, and she's done research where she showed that about 50% of your happiness is genetic, about 10% of your happiness is your circumstances, so how much money you have and how big your house is, and then 40%, which is really, I think, empowering, is your mindset. It's is your proverbial glass half full or half empty and the language you use right mm -hmm. and so this is where light up comes in that's where all these practices come in because you do have this starting off point but if you dress if you get a promotion you'll be happy and then you're going to go back yeah. to baseline well, right so yeah, the hedonic that, treadmill yeah. mm -hmm. right so you always want more if you get if you're VP, now you've made it to director, 
are you going to be happy a director no you want to be md and etc cetera, etc cetera. they've done research where they would ask people who make like fifty thousand dollars how much do you need to be happy and they would say a hundred thousand so it's like okay well then i guess if we ask somebody who makes a hundred thousand what they need to be happy they would just say they're happy already mm-hmm. well no now they need 250 <laughs> so that so just looking after only those very superficial things won't make you happy. What you really need to do is focus on your mindset and focus on your values and focus on being intentional about how you spend each and every one of your days and what are those goals? Are those goals really going to lead to happiness or are those goals just making the next promotion but not really adding a lot of value? You've got three levels of service, I believe, presumably because it's a scientific process. There's a lot more behind it. But you offer assessments, experiential learning and personalized coaching. Can you maybe just talk a bit more about how that is actually uh, applied to any business that works with Light Up Lab? Sure. So we have 10 core themes that we focus on. And some of those are things like resilience and empathy and creativity so out of the 10 core themes, we, we speak to organizations and we do an assessment and we say, what's important to you? Would you like your team to be more creative or maybe you're going through something, you want to talk more about resilience or your team isn't working very well together, so they really need to empathy. focus on empathy yeah. and social intelligence. What is it that's going on that you're looking to accomplish? And sometimes it's all of those things and we can do what we call our immersion series where we, we basically do all of our themes and we come and 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 do everything but we try to assess what are the needs of each organization and present the workshop in a way that's really relevant to their team and then the individualized coaching is sometimes people really need more so what we always do in our workshops is we introduce the concept of coaching we have different handouts so if we are talking about empathy we might do a a handout which asks you certain questions and maybe about self being compassionate to yourself. We've done, you know, inner critic kind of work where we try to assess what's going on inside. How are you treating yourself before we're even talking about how you treat other people? And there's actually work sh- handouts where you have to write answers to certain coaching style questions. But for many people, that's not enough and they want to dig deeper. And so then we offer the ability to do more coaching. When you go into the organizations and I say you're working, you're starting with people that not the executive team leaders, you're working with people that are more mid-level. When you're doing these assessments, who are you doing it with? Is it the, the, Are those teams or is it their team leaders to define what's the organization looking for? Presumably that's a, a C-level decision saying we need to be more creative. We've got a problem with conflict yes so that is driven by whoever is creating the workshop whoever the stakeholder is is. and so that could be the c-suite that could be if it's a very large organization sometimes they have a learning and development team Mm -hmm. that's interested in this sometimes they call it wellness there's a lot of different buckets that it goes into sometimes it is a two-day retreat for a specific group and they'd like for that group to experience things together to build the community so we do things like that so that really comes not from the employees themselves but then once we're there we're really trying to speak to those employees i mean it's really fascinating one of the 
the things that I've encountered a lot with a lot of the interviews we've done has been observation of on the negative impact of technology on people, both individuals and families and the workforce. Obviously, technology is a force for good, but it is, there's no question it's creating a generation of, let's call them digital sloths. The issue is really around distraction and an addiction to these technologies. How do you, how do, where's the crossover between the work you're doing, crack the code for happiness, when you encounter issues with, where there are issues with technology, because it's not just teams where you're talking about whether it's creativity or empathy, technology must run across all those issues. What do you do or what techniques do you have to then guide individuals and teams on how to be more effective with their use of technology? Sorry, that was a bit of a complicated question. Yeah, no, question. I, I completely agree with you that technology is creating a lot of stress for people and it's it's... Techno oh, technology is both an electronic leash, mm -hmm. what, right, where your boss can reach you at any time, and that's very distressing. And I remember that when I was at the law firm that you were expected to answer mm. an, any email within 20 minutes, and it didn't matter what time it was or what day it was, and it could be midnight on Christmas, and you're <laughs> the 20-minute rule applies. Wow. And that is something that has to be an organizational change, that at certain points, you have to say that we don't send emails past a certain time. Mm. And so that's not something that we really can change because we don't do this overhaul of culture but you i think you can advise but of course and that's that's very important i think that just the expectation that you're going to respond right away when you get an email the other problem that that expectation creates is that people can't be in the flow so we talk a lot about being in the flow whether that's playing a musical instrument whether that's exercising or whether that's just doing your work right being in the state where you lose track of time and you're your most productive, your best self. And people don't get a chance to be in the flow because they have to answer all of those emails. Mm -hmm. And so your work product can never really be that great if you are losing seconds every time because our brains, they're not multi-unit processors, they're single unit processors, which means that we don't know how to multitask. So this whole thing about women multitasking and guys not multitasking, <laughs> I've been sold a dummy on that one. <laughs> <laughs> our brains, they don't function that way. We are very good at task switching, Yeah. but we lose seconds every time that we do that. So if I'm writing, something for work if i'm writing a report and i get pinged that there's an email oh. and i switch or you got your phone sitting beside your computer or you have your phone sitting behind your computer and now you've seen that somebody posted something on instagram and you weren't invited to the party and somebody has a better outfit than you do all of a sudden you have all of these insecurity or even and, a whatsapp message from or a whatsapp message the organization on a group or a Slack message. So what I suggest to people is that they do the power hour where they mm. turn off their phone. And I actually do this. My phone is almost always on do not disturb. I love that. Mm. It's, it's my trick to life. My phone is on do not disturb. Because then it's my decision when I look. And really nothing can happen in an hour. Unless you have a very specific situation. At that point you could be focused on your phone. But... 
most of the time, you can put your phone away. So if you put your phone away and you do 20 minutes of uninterrupted work, you get up, you take a one minute stretch, you drink some water, you go back and you do this 20, 20, 20 and you have why, your power hour. Why 20 minutes? Is you know, they've done research on this. They've done the power hour and it works because after 20 minutes, you start getting a little distracted and it's just not healthy to sit so much. We always, you've, you, I'm sure you hear mm. now that sitting is the new smoking, yeah. right? So just being able to get up, to stretch, to get a little blood flow, drink some water and then get right back into it. But don't check your phone. Uh, but you need the alarm. For the 20 minutes you have a watch oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that means I've got to, I know I know if I, turn, if I turn my phone on to do not disturb my phone my watch also goes people say disturb. this a yeah. lot with also they they use their phone as their alarm clock this is yeah. why they can't have it outside of the bedroom and the amount of people that I've that I've heard now on interviews say an alarm clock costs like three dollars on Amazon. I think Simon Sinek has offered yeah. to buy people alarm clocks. He said, "If you can't well, buy the alarm clock, I'll get you one." I'm strongly of the view and, and working towards this of not using alarm clocks whatsoever, mm. um, just to be able to set your mind and say, "I have to be up at eight o'clock tomorrow." And I think there's something you can train your body to do, which is to set your own internal alarm, and you wake up. I mean, I did it yesterday with a three-minute window between a call I had at eight and I woke up at seven, um, seven fifty-seven. You uh, think that still works for people who have to wake up at five thirty? <laughs> Not if you go to bed at one o'clock, but I think <laughs> if you go to bed at ten. I've can... become. I basically wake up at six every day. My kids have programmed me. Yeah, I think you can program yourself. Um, I'll test it next time I get up at five o'clock in the yeah. morning for a flight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and go without Siri. No, but it's, it it's true. It's a habit. But re this reliance on the phone and feeling that you're going to miss something. So the uh -huh. problem is, too, that we get a dopamine boost every time we see a, a message come in. And we get a high. We want to see all those messages. That means that people like us and we're popular and we want, we just, we're addicted to it. And if we can just put it away and say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many messages I have. It's going to make you feel so much better. And you'll really be able to focus. I think that if I had my phone in front of me and the text messages coming in, if mm -hmm. I'm trying to create a workshop for someone, I would never, ever get it done because you'd be distracted all the time. You touched on something earlier about goal setting. I'm really interested in how people like Debbie Millman when we interviewed her, she talked about how Milton Glaser had put her through the most important design course he gave her was Designing Your Life, which he made them write this 10-year goal-setting plan where they wrote uh, an essay of what their future perfect day would be. And she now does it with her design students at SVA. And also, I interviewed um, Fabrice Grinda, who's the world's most prolific angel investor with 500 investments and oh, wow. something like 150 exits. And he has a, it's brilliant, if you read his blog, he writes letters to himself. They're twenty to 30,000 words long every three years. When he feels he needs a change in direction, where things need to be reorientated somewhat. And then he brings in his advisors and mentors to read them and then feedback to them and then he almost applies a technological sort of approach of test-driven development to throw things in different directions see what sticks but he's written down these are the things I want 
and then I suppose whereas Debbie it's about you know you've got these affirmations this this technique you've written your perfect day and then you every day you wake up and you're thinking about it can you just give me a little or give listeners a bit of perspective on what you're have learned about the text the proper techniques for goal setting and how things like maybe desire belief the actions you take and the affirmations affect and, and for you you even mentioned gratitude how that all ties in because i don't think people they hear goal setting a lot but don't necessarily understand it's a there's a proven technique so this best self letter has also been empirically researched mm -hmm. and we use it as well it's been shown that especially if you write down your goals you are substantially more likely to achieve them just by writing them down and by having this 10-year plan that you've written out, that's very, very powerful. What we like to do in our workshops, because we always include mindfulness as part of what we do, I actually think you get a lot more if you first do a visualization mm -hmm. on your best self. Because very different things come up. There is what you're conscious, what you think you want 10 years from now. And there is the subconscious of what you really want 10 years from now. And this one always leads people to tears. The amount of people that I've seen cry in this best self visualization because they're not expecting certain things to come up, but they do because they're not just dryly writing out their future resume. Sometimes that's the problem that when we write, when we just write, it all becomes this future resume you're creating for yourself. And when you visualize it in a meditative state, it probably unlocks something emotional. It unlocks emotional. very mm. emotional things. And, and I really, people cry at this one all the time. And, but then after we visualize, we always ask you to write it down because it's very important. But 10 years is a very long time, right? And that's why Debbie does five. But you also need short-term goals. How are you, what are you gonna do this week to get to this 10-year plan or five-year plan? It doesn't really matter, even if it's a one-year plan. Because in one year, what are you gonna do today? So there's this concept of smart goals, yeah. which are specific, measurable, attainable, and time relevant is very, very important. So if I say that 10 years from now, I want to be this you know, famous public speaker author, Okay, that's great for you, but what are you doing tomorrow to get there? And so maybe my smart goal should be that in the next week, I will give two public speaking engagements and I will create one new workshop. Like that is something that is very specific and that I can actually do and I could measure it. Did I do that? Did I not? And I can work from that if i just have this very large goal without any real understanding of what is my roadmap that's when it gets really difficult another technique that i think is really important is called mental contrasting which basically makes you think of what's going to go wrong what are your roadblocks because if you're prepared for your roadblocks and you've written out what you're going to do people do this a lot with nutrition too they say okay you want to lose 10 pounds, let's say that's your goal. So let's visualize what's gonna happen when you come home, you've had a really rough day, it's 9 p.m. 
and you want to open your fridge. Like don't you have, need don't have a six pack in there. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be prepared for that because yeah. they'll unless you've written out this is what's going to happen. I know I'm going to come home after a long day and I know I'm going to be tired and I know that I'm going to want to use food for comfort. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to I don't know, maybe I'll eat a celery stick, maybe instead of opening the fridge, I'll go exercise, maybe I'll go for a walk, maybe I'll read a book, but you need to be prepared. And that is true for health, but that is true for anything. What happens if your boss yells at you? Like you need to be prepared. You need to know what you're going to do if your goal is the promotion, mm -hmm. for example. Josh Holland, who we interviewed, um, has a great line. I think it's, um, if you want to change your body and mind, you have to change what you do all of the time, which is that. And it breaks it down right? into the tiny habits and, and the, the steps you need to take day by day. Because it is, it's not just... You know, yep. we're going to make this big change. It's, you know, being actionable. And I think they say that people always overestimate what they could do in a year and they underestimate what they could do in five. Right. Yeah. And true. the reason for that is because you think you have this big goal that you're going to do in a year. But unless you've written it out and you said, what is it going to how, how many weeks are there in that year? And what am I going to do in each of mm -hmm. the in each of those weeks? That's really what's going to get you there. I'd love your perspective on the importance of the foundational importance of sleep and if that these that comes into any of your conversations with these organizations. Honestly, we have not incorporated sleep into any of our conversations because I think that there are already a lot of experts who are handling sleep. Personally, if I don't get my eight hours of sleep, I am dysfunctional. And I think it's extremely, extremely important. It's just that we are focused on more kind of actionable things we could do yeah. together in the workshop. And I'd love to just tell people, make sure you get your eight hours of sleep, but I don't have any specific strategies. But I'll, I'll say that for myself, if I have evening obligations and I have a morning obligation, I will literally count the hours and I will go home. Like I will leave the party to make sure that I've had that exact eight hours of sleep because I know how important it is for me. That's impressive. Yeah, I'm pretty good at getting seven. I struggle with the eight these I, days. I need the eight. And my kids, my four and five-year-old, they know that they better be building Legos in their room that if it's before <laughs> six, they can't come out. <laughs> yeah, the mummy monster. We'll end part one here. Come back for part two to hear Elena discuss curiosity, creativity, education, passion, principles, and all the rest of our quick-fire questions. That's all for now, folks. See you next time. <laughs>